Hi, I'm Howard Stern, the program director of Westchester's Rock Station. You know, it's really hard to describe what makes a radio station a success. We here at WRNW have narrowed it down to a very few special elements. First and foremost, the music. I don't know that Stereo 107's music can be described in one catch-all phrase. We just represent the best in today's rock music and the music of years past. It's simple. WRNW has the music. WRNW entered the late 70s with a new team and a new sound. DJs Gary Axelbank and Bruce Figler became program director and production manager, respectively. By 77, there were new owners who came in and a new boss. And they decided that this rock thing wasn't what Westchester County needed. And both from a listener perspective and from an advertising perspective. I think he, I drove by his house. Can we say his name? No, I wouldn't. Okay. So we drove by his house and his house looked like a bank. I remember it was like, it was one of these brick buildings and you say, goodness gracious, who would ever live in a place like that? And that was his attitude was, you know what, if we're going to serve Westchester County, we ought to serve the executives and they want to have elevator music. We were playing mellow music. Well, so there was no, like a rule, on, it, it couldn't have a guitar riff. In. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Gary is over-exaggerating. Oh, we remained a rock station, but without the heavier stuff. So Without would, the rock. <laughs> well, we would play Springsteen, but we'd play Spirits in the Night and Not Born to Run. We would play Led Zeppelin, but we'd play Going to California and not Stairway to Heaven. So it was sort of a hybrid, if you will. So, well, let me, That's terrible. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, you were the program director I of it, know, so you're I responsible. I, I, was, I was doing the corporate thing. Well, here, but know, hold I on. kept no, my job. It was Election Day, 1977, and I remember I was just signing off at 1.50 a.m. election day morning. It was a Monday night, Tuesday morning. And I said, uh, don't forget to get out there and vote. Not that your vote will really mean anything, <laughs> but you just go out there and vote. And uh, the guy was sitting around waiting for me to just say something he didn't like at 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, next day he says, oh, you're done here. Utz, you're done. See you later. Okay, well, F you later. <laughs> Goodbye. So, 1976 into 1977, the station's way out there. They're playing, you know, the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, and they're playing anything and everything. New people come in, and they say, hey, we're tightening up ship. We're not going to be a hard rock station anymore. In fact, we're going to take anything hard off the air. At that point, the people who are basically calling the shots in terms of the program, um, Joe from Chicago was one of the guys, and Meg Griffin was another key person who was deciding the, the, the flavor of the station. They said, we're not doing that, and they both left. I don't think they could have coexisted, so they would have been fired probably if they didn't leave. They left, and they looked around the station. Who will, uh, who will lead us on the way? And that's how Howard Stern got the job, who was just a jock at the time, but he was malleable. He didn't have that passion for the experimental music. He came on and said, yeah, I'll do what you want. So they took the, the hard guts out of the station. Howard became the new program director, started hiring people, and that's how I got in there. And we were soft for a while, but ever so slowly, we started adding more and more in. And by the time 1980, 81 rolled around, 
we were rocking pretty good. Now, we didn't go crazy. We weren't playing Black Sabbath, but we weren't quite as as conservative as they, as they had like. hoped originally. And as a music director, one of your jobs is fielding calls from record promotion people, sell, uh, pushing their latest projects. And so here you have all these people just trying to do their job, and, and they were accustomed to you know, dealing with a free-form station where they could pretty much be guaranteed there'd be a couple of new albums from their label getting added on any given week. And all of a sudden, you know, they're talking to me about something that I know is not going to be anything we're going to be playing under this new format. And uh, it was it was a little uncomfortable <laughs> trying to either say that in a gentle way or not say it and kind of you know, just say, you know, I'll, I'll do my best or something along those lines without making any promises, knowing that it probably uh, was not going to be happening. So it was, a, it was a tricky position to be in. We had new ownership at that point, and they did not want a progressive rock station any longer. They wanted something that was going to be more commercial and not so hard or abrasive or what have you. So it was Howard's job and with him mine to sort of cull out of this vast music library a much, 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 much smaller uh, selection of music, and it, it had to conform to those requirements. It was a really silly idea in, in retrospect, I mean, to make that kind of a drastic change, yet still attempt to be, quote-unquote, playing rock. I mean, I remember, you know, we, we would play Led Zeppelin, but not anything heavy by Led Zeppelin, so there would be like two or three Led Zeppelin songs that were acoustic Led Zeppelin songs, like from the third album. That would be the Led Zeppelin songs that we would play, which is kind of ridiculous looking back. Howard Stern had been hired around the same time as DJ Harris Allen, and said of their early days, quote, he was so good, and I was like, I could never be that good. I, I had a good voice. You know, that's the one thing that I was blessed with. And, I, you know, I can't. that's not any great talent. That's just something you happen to have or you don't. I had a good voice, and it, and it was the kind of voice that, that just kind of, for whatever reason, going through all the electronics and transmitters and all of that stuff, ended up coming out on the other end and sounding good and, and appealing or, or whatever, you know, you might want to call it. But as far as being a DJ, I mean... I know enough to know that I really wasn't, uh, I was not that good. I mean, uh, you know, we, we were all relatively new, but I mean, uh, when I, I cringe when I do hear, it's been a long time, but when I've heard little snippets of me on the air at R&W because I was, uh, you know, it was cool to be mellow and I was, I guess, considered, you know, to have a mellow voice, whatever that meant at the time, but there was not a lot of energy coming out of those those radios as far as I'm concerned. So his perception notwithstanding, uh, you know, I, I, I had a lot to learn. The departure of Meg Griffin had left big shoes to fill. In stepped a young DJ who went by the name of Donna Donna. Gene Clark, Roger McGuinn, Chris Hillman, and Won't Let You Down. In the Atlanta Rhythm section, we heard Crazy Squeeze, If I Didn't Love You, Manfred Mann, going way back to the original British invasion, invasion for the Bob Dylan song, Quinn the Eskimo, Stevie Wonder, A Tree, A Star, A Seed, Medley, Andrew Gold with Geneviève, and good evening. 
WRNW107FM. It's 23 after 6 on a Wednesday night. I'm Donna, and you know what Wednesday nights means. Joe Piasek, Joe from Chicago, called me back and was like, uh, come in, I want you to do the uh, God Shift, which was the morning uh, shift on Sundays where you would play all the public service tapes, and then at the end you would do 15 minutes of news that you would rip and read from the uh, from the teletype that was across this tiny little hall from the bathroom right outside the air studio and I would do my 15 minutes of news and then uh, Joe and his uh, girlfriend at the time later wife got uh, let go because the station was changing format Howard Stern was made the program director and Howard gave me Meg's shift 6 to 10 at night 6 days a week so I'm in professional radio three weeks, and I get a full-time great shift like that. And I got to tell you, following Meg Griffin was difficult because she was playing all the new sounds from England. She was playing all of the, I don't know, they called it new wave back in 77, but all the punk rock and all the new wave stuff. And she just had a great ear and people were glued to the radio to see what she was going to play next. So once Meg and Joe were let go, the station went to a soft rock format so I'd be on the air playing, you know, these quiet records, and people would be calling up saying, Where's Meg? Despite his notorious reputation, Howard Stern's R&W co-workers remember a very different guy. And I remember that Howard was the program director, but he would go into the one production studio we have after his shift at 2 o'clock, and he'd lock the door. And he would create all these little bits and stuff that he ultimately used to seek his fortune, which the irony was that someone like Bruce or whoever was making commercials or doing work for the station, you couldn't do it because Howard had sealed it off. So, right? Am I, am I correct well, on there's that? There's truth to that. And there's also truth to the fact that he would block off time in there to do TM. TM he was meditating, is, oh, transcendental meditation. Yeah, so he, it was like his own private little spot. Uh, I remember him as um, being exactly the person that he claimed years later, much more famously, that he was. He was kind of a, I don't want to say a dork or a nerd, but kind of a straight-laced kind of guy. And when the record by Dean Friedman came out, um, he loved that record. And I remember going to the Bottom Line, which was a, a club down in, in the village, with Howard... <laughs> to see Dean Friedman and Howard was all excited. I, I do remember this. This was one of uh, Howard's idiosyncrasies and one of his, uh, one of the weird things he used to do. So there was a stairway. You had to go up a very, very narrow stairway. And quite often there's a lot of people working there. Two people would try and navigate that stairway at the same time. And you had to turn sideways to pass each other. And if it was a guy, Howard would grab on and, and, and tweak your nipples. I'm really happy he never did that to me. Oh, he did No, I'm, I'm really happy. He, he never, never did, did it to a woman because it would have gotten him yes. killed on that stairway. And, but. And, and he wouldn't have had the career he ended up having. <laughs> he talks about how he does transcendental meditation, and I also did it. I don't still, he does. But we would, from time to time, we'd meditate together in the production studio. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. <laughs> so Howard Stern, um, we had a window in the studio because it was just a little house, and we keep the window open because as we have uh, indicated it uh, got pretty hot in there and a bee flew in while Howard was on the air 
and he couldn't stand having the bee around. So he had boots and he took off his big boot and he tried to kill the bee and he went right through the window. <laughs> and I remember coming in at 10 p.m. and the window was all boarded up and I said, what happened? And that was, that was, uh, that's a Howard Stern story. I wonder if he still remembers it. Although R&W had gone through a lot of changes during the late 70s, the spirit of the station remained. Uh, despite this horrific setting, it worked somehow. We made it work. But because of what I use the word intimacy, because it was intimate and you were intimate with the music, you were intimate with the audience, and you, you had no choice but to be intimate with each other. I don't want to say a family, but it was a, a cohesive team, a cohesive group, all committed to the same thing. When nobody makes any money, then you have nothing to compete, <laughs> compete about. You may as well get into what you love. I think that it was much more of a family than any other radio station I've ever worked at. Mm, and it was because we were, we were all in it for the same reasons and we were all starving and our social lives, we were forced to do what the radio station was doing. And we all went out and we all sort of loved each other. And, you know, not that we didn't have our, our issues with each other from time to time, but it was, it was like a family. I made lifelong friendships with the, the people we worked with. And, and to work at a station like R&W, which is small, uh, dare I use the words rinky-dink, you do it because you love it. You know, so we were all so invested in what we were doing. And, you know, just, you know, we wanted to turn people on to new music, to good music. And we wanted to make people happy with music. So it was kind of hard not to be happy. People had relationships with their radio stations back then. They knew yes. all the jocks. Absolutely. They spent hours and hours. And I was one of them. That's what got me into it in the first place. Yep. Uh, I was listening to WLIR in Long Island and WNEW-FM in New York City. It was my constant companion, and I felt at one with them. Even though I had never met any of the people, I felt like their inside jokes were my inside jokes. When they were feeling down and the music was blue, I was blue. We made $4 an hour. We made $96 a week at WRW, and, you know, it was hard to live on, even in 90. 77. It was very hard to live on that. And I think we made that the whole time we were there, mostly. You know, I think a lot of it was the music, but also we were all kind of young and we would, you know, party together and we worked together and nobody was making any money, you know, or making very little money. So it wasn't about the money. It was about, I think it was about the music for a lot of us, actually, about the music and the camaraderie and what a great way to make a living, right? Or what a great thing to do for a job. And you're also like a tiny bit of a celebrity, which is always kind of fun. One of the station's newest hires was a part-timer named Allison Miller. Well, my honor name is my real name, which is Allison Miller. And I remember somebody saying to me, oh, really? Because there was Allison Steele and Carol Miller were the big female jocks in New York at the time. But that's actually my real name. So I just used my real name. Eric Clapton, Derek and the Dominoes, the Almond Brothers, I was a big fan of when I was in high school. But then there was also like Steely Dan and the Eagles were around, and Joni Mitchell, and uh, Bonnie Raitt was around too. There's just a lot of stuff that kind of came up in the, I guess, late 70s. And then what was happening, I remember Donna Donna, and she was kind of my, my idol. I thought she was just like the coolest ever. She, I don't know that she knows that, but I just thought she was... 
And I remember her having a big Tom Petty poster, like, by her desk when nobody had heard of Tom Petty. So he was considered kind of, you know, on the edge. And then there was new stuff happening, like, you know, the Ramones and, and the Talking Heads and those things kind of came into play in the early 80s there. We're doing something new and innovative, and we call it Concert Rock. The concerts represent the best works of artists like Paul Simon, the Doobies, Dave Mason, the Eagles, or how about Concert Rock with the Beatles? I need somebody in my life. I love you more. And that's Concert Rock with the Beatles. We did create some formats, and Bruce will, of course, remember, we created a concept called Concert Rock, one word, Concert Rock, and we created a calendar called the Concert Rock Calendar, and each jock during the day, and I don't remember, so maybe it was at noon for the midday guy, at four o'clock for the afternoon guy, at seven o'clock, I don't really know exactly what it was, and we would put out a calendar, and for 20 minutes, the jock would play everything from the Moody Blues, everything from James Taylor, and you'd have 20-minute little concert segments. The beauty of that, where it combined with the notion of the jock being able to select records, you could play anything from that artist. So that if I liked the John, you know, maybe I had John Prine concert rock, I could play songs that people knew, Angel of Montgomery or something like that, but I could also pick something that was my favorite, and it, it formularized it a little bit but it didn't structure it in the same way the New York City stations were. That was our way of beginning to say, well, there's a little structure. Plus, the theory was you promote the calendar, you circulate the calendar. People who were fans of James Taylor would tune in at 4 p.m. to listen to 20 minutes of James Taylor music. For us, it was the combination of a formula as well as giving the jock some creativity so you could pick out your favorite James Taylor song that didn't get played a lot, and real fans who might have tuned into that would enjoy it. It was just an attempt to use our creativity to do something that meant something to people, and I, I know Bruce will remember this because he produced a lot of, a lot of the bits. We, we did a thing called Decade as 1979 turned to 1980. The 1970s. They meant a lot of different things. To a lot of different people. Goodbye to Vietnam. Hello, gas lines. So long, Elvis the King. Hello, Elvis the Punk. Kent State and Watergate. Beatles sour nuclear power. Smaller cars and disco bars. Son of Sam, Teleco Dam. Patty Hearst, the Yanks in first. Rising bills, oil spills. Spiraling inflation, the me generation. Star Wars and Jaws can't find a cause. WRNW 107 FM would like your impressions of the 1970s. In the days to come, we will be soliciting phone calls from you in order to tape your comments and replay them along with the music of the 1970s through the final days of the decade think about the past decade and the one on its way and when we ask for your calls let us know what you think then listen to WRNW 107 FM through the final days of the 1970s and we planned it out. We, it took a lot of work and commitment from everybody on the staff. And so I guess it was 10 days before New Year's Day, we did 1970. And that day, all the jocks would play music from 1970. And we had news bits 
from that year, which of course Bruce was the production director, so he helped find them and edit them. Then the next day we did 1971, 1972, and 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 then of course we sold it to advertisers to say that you know you're going to be part of something special. I frankly, as a program director, am very proud of that because that was really it was totally different from what everybody else had been doing. It had been using our medium of music. It had been giving the DJs to have a chance to study and say, oh, I remember this track from 1974, and then they would play the track and and you know each each of us would be committed to it so it was um, DJs being committed to the music it was having talented people like Bruce around to be able to do the research and find the the sound bites of, of all the news stories and things like that and that's the kind of thing that progressive radio to me was really about was taking the realities of people's lives and using our medium to translate it into something that would help them learn help them enjoy Etc. Etc. So that, to me, that was the kind of programming we did. Even though we said the DJs had free reign to choose records, I had a reputation of jumping up and down a lot in music meetings. But you know, I, I was I was lobbying for a lot of the new stuff. Um, you know, Joe Jackson, Elvis Costello. I think you're big yeah, fans yeah, of yeah. theirs. Duran Duran and and uh, Simple Minds and you know. Talking Heads. Talking Heads. And we were playing Talking we Heads. We were playing Talking Heads, yeah. That was, that was a lot of fun. It seems that every generation has a great tragedy that unites people and makes us feel that things might never be the same again. For the R&W crew, that event was the death of John Lennon. The AP machine went off when John Lennon was killed, and I remember that. I was there, I was on the air, and then Alan, who was another jock, was there too. And we were both... We were both a little bit um, impaired, you know. Uh, that used to happen in radio a lot in the studios back in the day. So I remember, bang, you know, the alarm's going off. He comes in and he's like, oh my God, John Lennon was shot. And I was just freaked out. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, what do I say? What do I do? I don't know, I don't know how to get on the air and say somebody died. And that was, so that was really kind of terrifying. But also I was a little altered, which made me freak out even even more, so it was kind of a weird experience. When stuff happened, you could be on the radio and use the music to tell that story. I mean, you know, the, the, obviously the biggest story of all time was when John Lennon died, and the next day, uh, we were all, of course, incredibly upset, but think of, uh, as a radio DJ, with your choice, you could play anything, and certainly we were open-minded. It really had a lot of passion. I remember being at home watching Howard Cosell announce it, and knowing that our friend Alan Chapin was on the air at the time, and he he called me right away. He said, "Gary, the the um, uh, you know the news wire is going crazy. It was going bing 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 bing," and I still somewhere in my archives have the original AP copy, and it was, it was almost as if the AP writer couldn't get over it either because it went. John Lennon is dead. John Lennon is dead. It is 20 minutes after 2 in the afternoon. Gary Axelbank with you at WRNW 107 FM. And uh, what we're going to do is uh, uh, once again and continuously open the, the telephone lines to uh, folks who would like to uh, just just say something. There, we, We've already received flowers here at the radio station and... Uh, and dozens and dozens of people have called the station with something to say, and I, and I feel like uh, we're, we're all in this together, you know, and, and, and everybody has, has got some feelings on the matter. 
As the 80s dawned, RNW went through another change in management. Well, a program director was, was brought in from another market. And, you know, PD changes are always... Traumatic. Well, they can be smooth, but they can often be, you know, very turbulent. And he wanted to rigorously play the album rock that was getting played on WNEW and typical rock stations. And he'd also have, all right, you're going to play this cut or this cut on this album. And he was very, very strict about that. And you, you couldn't cross him. I tried. Didn't work out so well. <laughs> the evolution was from being this really free form, whatever you want goes, station into a more, what you see now, more typically programmed where you have music that's, uh, I don't know if they did testing there, but they did in the subsequent years, they've done a lot of, uh, market testing, you know, in other words, they'll get a group of people from your demographic and they'll play a song and they'll ask you if you know it, if you like it or don't like it. And that's how they pick their playlist. And that kind of started with Ron Rizzi, who came in and he's the one that fired. He, I know he fired Bruce. He took over for Gary because Gary was the program director. So he was a new guy. And then he gave us, you know, he gave us limitations and day parts that you could play things in. So there were different categories of music. There were what they called like gold, the older stuff. And then there was um, the new, the hot, the recurrent, they called them, which is stuff that was really hot, but it's kind of coming down. So these went into categories, and you had to do things in a certain order, and you couldn't deviate outside of the approved playlist. You couldn't go deep into albums in the same way that you could when um, it was WRNW. I mean, it was still WRNW, but back in the day. We were right there when it changed. Right at that time that R&W was just kind of ending, really, in the early 80s. You know, it was, it was right in the center of that whole movement from one to the other. We were so far, you know, progressive, so to speak, and then all of a sudden, we're, the world changed. And that just evolved over time as radio became more and more about business and more and more about money. And, you know, that's what it's all about nowadays. Radio was now a different world, thanks in large part to the deregulation policies of the newly elected president, Ronald Reagan. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Really, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan really started to push deregulation across all different kinds of industries. And one of the first things that happened in the radio business and, and television too, is they began to eliminate ownership caps. So back in the day, you, knew you could own seven AM, seven FM, and seven television stations. That was total. You could have all three in one market, but there was a cap on what you could own, seven, seven, and seven. The first round of deregulation, they basically eliminated those caps. So the big companies started to buy up everything. So the station flipped format. What was the format they flipped to even? It was adult contemporary. And uh, a few people were let go. station got sold. Oh, excuse me, yes. So they changed the format and I just assumed that I was fired. <laughs> and then that day where they, you know, came in and took over, I thought maybe I should show up to work anyway. Maybe they're like waiting for me. So I went in and they were like, oh, you're here. We kind of thought you wouldn't want to work here anymore. And I said, yeah, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> that was the easiest firing I've ever been fired. <laughs> That's a pretty traumatic one. Too. But if you, 
if you saw what they were going to make her play, you would understand that this was not going to be for her. Yeah. It started off as not necessarily a moneymaker. It was more of a tax write-off or it was more of an experiment. And as it grew in popularity, big business caught wind of it. And when big business catches wind of things, they try to formulate it to get every last dollar out of it. Hence, you had the beginning of what they call radio consultants. And they would tell you how to do it, how to program the station. It wasn't up to the Garys and the Bruces of the world to decide what we were in the and mood Donna, to play. And let's be fair. And everybody, everyone who worked there, <laughs> Curtis and Earl and whoever else worked there, it was our job to capture the moment and put it out there. Now, some computer or some guy sitting in an office who's not living in, in the moment, he is saying, all right, tomorrow at 2, we're going to play this song and then follow it up with this song. Whereas we were a stream of consciousness. You know, I knew that changed when I was in Florida and so was in the mid-80s at some point. And I just finished a set of music and did my little back announce and went into commercials. And right at that point, the program director barged into the studio. He shoved a stopwatch into my face and he said, nobody is interested in what you have to say for 45 seconds. And at that point... <laughs> Uh, I realized that uh, that was not the place for me. You get people in the demographic, you know, that you want to attract, and you bring them in a room, and you play the hooks of all these songs, and they rate them. And it's it doesn't test because it gets below the line. If you have a high score, it gets played. If you have a low score, it doesn't get played. However, in my personal opinion, if we're not playing Midnight Rambler by the Stones, which is a great song, it's a, you know, it's a definitely a Stones outstanding track. If you're not playing it for 10 years, it's not going to test, you know? So in a way, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy that we can only play these top Billy Joel songs from a man who's got a, a, an incredible catalog. Many veterans of RNW went on to have long and illustrious careers in radio, some even making it to the fabled halls of WNEW in New York City. But all of them look back with fondness and pride at the time they spent spinning records in that ramshackle building in Briarcliff Manor. It touches so many chords inside of us what this meant to us back when we were young and you know it was it was a touchstone period of time for us and i think that uh, that's true for most everyone who worked there and we've established in this conversation that it's a touchstone time for radio and for a transition from one style of broadcasting to another which now of course is taken over the world in its own way yeah we we kind of had a lot of fun and we did some things and I think that's what WRNW did. I think we had a lot of fun doing what we did, and we kind of put a stamp on the industry and in the market. That's it. Music was huge. Music was a huge part of the generation. Uh, I was at Woodstock, so you know you had that rolling in, you know, just ahead of us getting into the station format, and it was it was you know it was political. It was uh, representative of what. Youth culture was all about in the 60s and 70s, so it, it kind of formed the basis for what was going on out there in those years. Looking back 30, 40 years later, we were really lucky. It was great. It was really good. I think a lot of times people become anxious 
with their lot in life because they're all caught up in it. If they were able to take a step back and look at it for what it really is, we'd probably have lower blood pressure. It was so much fun. I mean, it was it was it was what, to a large extent, it was it was what a, a kid in his imagination thinks being a rock and roll DJ would be like. I mean, we were we were local celebrities in our way, and we got all of it. You know, free records and free concerts and stuff like that. And there were all these other wonderful people. I mean, I, I haven't said this enough. That one of one of the things that was so great about RSW was that there was really a lot of talented DJs that passed through that place during the course of time. Connectivity. That's that's really what we were striving. I I I thought anyway. We're trying to really connect with people. As opposed to just playing background music and, oh, yeah, it's a radio station. It's, I don't know, what is he playing? You, know, you wanted to be foreground and connected and engaged. You wanted to connect with the audience. You wanted to have them stay with you because they were interested. Honor Laubish, who was one of the owners, his business really was shopping centers. And he would always come up every now and then and see what was going on and he looked around and he said to us you know one day you're all going to look back on this and say those are really great days and we just got so angry at him because he was paying us 96 dollars a week we had to run over to the bank so that the money didn't run out the last few people their checks bounced anyway when i look back on that that's sob was right it was a great time to be in Briarcliff Manor doing progressive rock radio. Well, you know, when we were all together at RMW, we were young, we were hungry, we were ambitious, <laughs> we were broke. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun together. We were good looking, too. <laughs> For the Love of Rock and Roll has been a special edition of the River Talk podcast, a production of Rivertown's media publisher of River Journal and River Journal North. Special thanks to my publisher, Alan Begun, and my editor, Bruce Apar, for their constant support and guidance, and to Robert Brum for breaking the story. And of course, all of the RNW jocks who participated in this project, Kent Murphy, Bob Maroney, Ted Utz, Harris Allen, Tom Jones, Donna Donna, Allison Miller, Gary Axelbank, and of course, Bruce Figler, without whom none of this would have been possible. My name is Christian Larson, and I thank you so much for listening.